Hi, my name is Jan Wilczek from dewoosound.com. Welcome to Wolf Talk, a podcast about audio programming. In this podcast, you will learn how to build your career in programming or research related to audio, meet programmers and researchers from all around the world, and learn about the intricacies of sound. Hi everyone, welcome to the fifth session of the Wolf Talk podcast. Today I'm very excited because I have a very special guest for you. Steve Barillet was a normal 9-to-5 employee of a tech company until one day he and his friend Daryl started a company that produces actual music hardware. I don't want to steal anything from his story and I'll let him tell it in full, but I just wanted to say that if you are a maker and you would like to actually ground a company and sell your products on the market, or if you are interested in making your own music hardware, then this is the episode for you. And I highly, highly encourage you to listen to Steve's story. As usual, all the places, people and things mentioned in this podcast episode can be found in the... um, talk show notes under dewolfsound.com slash talk 005. One final disclaimer before we start this episode. It was recorded in February of 2022. So I guess that the company has moved forward with the progress on their newest project I'm very, very excited about. But just keep in mind that uh, it's going to be published, let's say, Uh, four months after being recorded. So now, without further ado, enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the next session of the Wolf Talk podcast. I have a very special guest for you. It's Steve Barriel from Conductive Labs. Steve, thanks for agreeing on this interview. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. I I love it. (laughs) Could you introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, sure. Um, Let's see. So my name is Steve. It's Borelli. It's actually Italian. Um, and, uh, let's see, uh, uh, my business partner, Daryl and I started conductive labs about five years ago. And, um, we, uh, both retired from Intel after, uh, many years. We're not really retirement age, but worked there long enough that we could do the retirement exit. And, um, well, we're both, we were both synthesizers. We're, we're, we were, we're best friends essentially and we're both synthesizer fans and so when you're you know don't have a lot to do because we decided to just take some time off before we started looking for our next job well you start searching on craigslist for synthesizers and before you know it we had more synthesizers than we needed and and that that sort of ran into a problem of how do you control all these things And at the same time, I discovered watching YouTube to learn stuff. And I'm always curious about new things. And there's this, I'm, I'm going to shout out this guy's website probably 10 times. I hope you don't mind. But um, uh, Notes and Volts. That's like notes, the notes that you play, musical notes and volts. Um, I stumbled across his uh, podcast, his uh, his uh, YouTube channel. And uh, 
he walks you through very, very gently and very, uh, uh, very meticulously. Um, but he's a really cool, kind dude. So it's not too nerdy. Uh, walks you through how to build a, a MIDI controller on a breadboard um, with a, with a couple buttons and knobs. And he walks through Arduinos and Nanos and all that stuff. And and I, I remember watching that pod that, that, that I keep saying podcast that YouTube cha- um, channel video and man, I was like, I think I can do that. So I dusted off an old breadboard I had in a box from college, literally like 25 year old breadboard. And, um, and I had bought an Arduino to put into a Lego train that I was working on from another hobby. So I had that laying around and I plugged these things together and I don't even think I had a MIDI jack. I think I literally used an alligator clip to connect to one of my MIDI <laughs> cables, or might, I might even have cut one of the cables just to get the wires free. And and within uh, within a few hours, I had I had a a little breadboard, and I could press a button and make one of my synthesizers make a sound. <laughs> and my head just went pew. It just I just I I couldn't I couldn't stop thinking about all the fun things. So was this was this synthesizer like a direct realization, direct uh, you know, uh, making of one of the tutorials, or was it your own idea right away? Oh, well, the synthesizer was like a BeatStep Pro or something. It was just one of these little mono synths that you bought, right? The the controller was literally just a breadboard with a was it a two hundred twenty ohm resistor. Mm-hmm soldered to the end of my MIDI cable. <laughs> and there was no MIDI in because that took an optocoupler and all that, which I didn't have, but I did have a resistor and a cable. And and it was just a matter of sticking a, I think it was a nano, probably a nano, Arduino mm-hmm. nano. And you know, the fact that you could press a button and, and an input could mm-hmm. be sensed. And then I would just set I sent like a MIDI note 60 value out the port to channel one. And it just made the synthesizer go beep. That was it, right? It was, but it was the realization that I could make that thing go beep. That and, uh, uh, everything else just was like, oh, that it's like in the computer graphics, right? The the thing, the first thing you need to do is all, all you need to do is be able to put a pixel, light up a pixel on the screen with a color, right? And it's exactly the same thing. Turn on it. Turn on a note with a, va- a note value, right? It's a, it's a functionally equivalent to the put a pixel on the screen. Mm-hmm. And from putting a pixel on the screen to drawing a 3D teapot is like a one semester class in university. Right? <laughs> and um, I took that class 30 years. And uh, so I, I kind of have that mental model. And it was the same thing. When, once I knew I could play that note, then I knew I could make a teapot. Yeah, exactly. And I hope uh, maybe one day someone, you know, will be as excited about Wolf Sound as you are about Notes and Vaults. But I believe that such such channels are an incredible opportunity for everyone to see that these things are completely makeable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I love you. I love that's how I discovered meeting you. Is, is <laughs> your, your channel with curiosity about how things work. Yeah, I think your your channel might be like the next step. Kinda, <laughs> it's kind of a little a little mathy and, and which is good because you need to know that stuff. But uh, but for just like literally, what value resistor mm-hmm. do you plug into what hole? Uh, yeah, exactly. Really great. Yeah. Step by step. So how did you go from uh, this uh, realization that you actually can yeah. make uh, hardware music, uh, or like music gear, yeah. to uh, idea for a company? How did you go 
to that point? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I've always been sort of the company wanting to be a, a owner of a company kind of guy. I So that was just such a natural thing, right? The, the harder part for me was going, is filling the gap between the idea to starting the company. The idea of starting a company has always been, you know, mm -hmm. we talked before about, you know, I started this little Lego company to sell just various color leaf, Lego leaves to build trees out of, you know, just the idea of selling things and moving product. And actually I take that back, you know, it's not so much about the selling or making money. It's it, it to me, it was like putting the, these, the Lego leaves in the example of the last company in the hands of people that were going to build stuff out of Lego and have more colorful trees. Um, it, it's like, you know, I, I don't think I'm an entrepreneur actually, after, <laughs> after being a company owner now, um, I'm not motivated so much about money as I am about making things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe it's a good time to address this background. I don't know if anybody knows who this guy is. Do you, do you know who he is? Uh, no, actually I don't. Okay. So this is a, this is the workshop of Karatikas Potts. And Karatikas Potts is the lead character of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Okay. And Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, are you familiar with that movie? No, unfortunately oh, okay. not. Well, it was a, an American movie, but it was shot like in, in Europe. So it was a British movie to us, even though it wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he was an inventor of crazy stuff. Like I think this thing right here was the first vacuum cleaner in the world. Um, and he made a flying car um, uh, with had these wings that came out and it was made from a classic car from the, like, the 19, like the turn of the century, like 1905 or something like that. But his name was Karatikas Potts, which for short is crackpot, which in the United States, people who make crazy inventions are called crackpots. Um, and I just I, I made that. That that mental leap years and years later, I never put that together that his name was Crackpot. Um, but I, I put this background here because this is this is who I am. When I watched this movie when I was five years old, I, I wanted to be him. I wanted to have that room and be that inventor. And um, somehow or another, I equated being an entrepreneur with being an inventor. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I don't really think it's the same thing after now that I've been down that path. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there I, were few, I, no, sorry, sorry. Yeah, there. I think there were a few people in in history who like combined both. They were inventors yeah. and entrepreneurs, but at the same time, there were a few people who who were just inventors and felt very good as employees. Yeah, yeah. I wish I could find my karatek, my my entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Both Daryl and I talk about this because he and I are neither of us are like really bloodthirsty for for co company growth and and, mm -hmm. and sales and stuff like that right and uh we're more daryl like for instance is more concerned about supporting our customers well mm -hmm. and that's definitely not entrepreneurial <laughs> make another one make another one make you know it's not like wait a minute stop making things we need to support our customers <laughs> yeah. okay so, so about about those customers like yeah, uh, yeah. what um how did you go about the first product? Like how did the design process look? How did your thought process look? Mm -hmm. Well, we, um, the, one of the things that I, we both kind of wanted, um, Daryl and I was a controller 
that was really flexible to control synthesizers, you know, like, um, so like here's a standard, you know, like a core controller. Most of the layouts are gonna be like for mixers or DAWs. Um, they're either they're either the standard, you know, grid layout for like launching mm -hmm. uh, launch pads, or they're these sliders that are like eight of them in a row for, for doing the, the mixing part of the DAW. Um, or you have the keyboard ones, right? Like like this guy. It looks like a little keyboard, right? Oops, mm -hmm. there yeah. there we go. Mm -hmm. um, but we kind of wanted a controller that we can control synth knobs with because some of the gear we were buying was like 90s uh, EMU, the e EMU uh, uh, romplers, they were called. Some of them had really crappy sounds, but we discovered a couple of them that had really beautiful sounds like the Orbit is a really mm -hmm. cool rompler. But there were like, there's literally like one encoder and one button and you have to menu dive through this, this giant maze of menus with this little, you know, character based screen with 20 characters. And um, so anyway, we, we, you know, we wanted something to, to, to um, I'm looking over here because I'll show it to you. So we came up with this idea of making a, a MIDI controller that was really flexible. And the first thing that we did was <laughs> literally this was. After building the breadboard, this was our first invention. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got a, a big Arduino here and a little a breadboard over here. And these are rotary encoders across the bottom, and these are buttons across the side. And so it makes a grid. Under this grid, we had NeoPixels. So we would light up each cell of the grid. Whoa, things are vanishing. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, and then you'd be able to take, wow, this is weird. Then you'd be able to slide this piece of paper out. Ah, I'm so sorry. There you <laughs> go. And you would write down on this piece of paper what, what the value, what the, what the cell meant. So mm -hmm. it's basically kind of like, um, what is that, an Evolver? The Evolver desktop has this grid where you, there are several. I think even the, um, the Waldorf... Uh, uh, what's the name of the, what's the, she's senior moment here. Uh, Blofeld, the Blofeld has this X, Y mm -hmm. grid thing. And so does the, uh, and so does the, uh, uh the uh, Evolver desktop. So, you know, it's got written on it. It's got what these things are. And if you press that button, that's choosing that row. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then by turning the encoder, that's choosing the column and then making the, so it's basically a row and column kind of thing. And, and we got it working. And it was cool because when you'd pull out that sheet and plug it back in, based on some uh, code on the corner, it would, it would change the profile. So you could put multiple sheets in and it would automatically know what to do. Very, very seven, very 80s or 90s. <laughs> yeah, I think of we like our perforated cards, right? Something like this. Yeah, yeah. We were trying not to put a giant display on it, right? Because that would, you know, we wanted to sell this thing for like $150. Mm -hmm. That was sort of this weird goal that we had. Um, and then we kind of decided maybe that wasn't the right, the right way to go because it was, it was becoming very cumbersome to program and, and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, then the, the, you know, the next, the next thing that happened was uh, I, I was also, I've told this story before, but I was also really frustrated with the fact that I play guitar a little bit. And so I, I know how, you know, like 
you know, folky guitar, not very good, but just singing along, right? Old Beatles mm-hmm. songs or whatever. So you strum a C or a D and an F chord and and you sing. And, and then usually what you have is the lyrics, the lyrics written down. Mm-hmm. And above the lyrics, you'll have the chord names or types. And so I have a couple of these sequencers for my synthesizers, and none of them under, none, none of them had the con- concept of how to play a chord. Um, and, and so if you'd make a sequence of the chord notes and transpose that sequence, it would literally transpose the sequence. And so if you went from a C major and transposed it up a whole step, it would go to a D major, mm-hmm. which in the key of C is not what it should be. It should be a D minor mm-hmm. following some music theory. And I had some, some lightweight music theory, uh, some compositional theory. And, um, and I knew this sort of how key signatures worked and chord progressions. And I couldn't find anything that would let me just press that C, D, E, F, G and it playing the right sonority chords, the major mm-hmm. and minor chords, the way they should be. And that was really the root of the idea. Um, the second half of the idea was we had all these synthesizers and most controllers can only play one, synth- one synthesizer at a time, uh, most sequencers. Mm-hmm. Some of them have multi-tracks, especially now it's, you know, five years later, right? But uh, I think maybe the the BeatStep Pro had two tracks that you could play two different synths with. Um, but I had, you know, like eight synths at the time. <laughs> I need, to, and, and they were still, and they were monophonic. I think they were monophonic, maybe poly, but it was really hard if it's polyphonic and, and it's not changing the chord, everything just gets jumbled and messy. And so the so, idea of building mm-hmm. the noodler came up, which is, I'm worried now that anything I, all my show and tell is going to look terrible, but yeah, so this is the noodler. And so we just had the idea of the chords around here, a little bit like this. It's not the circle of fifths, even though it sort of resembles (laughs) that. I kind of use like the design aesthetic to be like sort of resembling that. And then these knobs control the different, the four different parts that it plays because it controls four synthesizers. So uh, it's really, I I think it's really amazing that. You're, you know, you're a user of a synthesizer, of a mm-hmm. synthesizer of multiple synthesizers, and uh, you also have some background in music. So it's not just, you know, pressing random buttons and enjoying what comes out. Yeah. And then you're saying, okay, I'm missing this, this like uh, step between a full keyboard and a simple, um, I don't know, arpeggiator, right, or, or a sequencer. And then you yeah. say, okay. Let's make one. Let's let's make one. And actually, uh, when someone's listening to this, it's it's not possible to see. But uh, like the end product is, uh, it yeah, it looks it looks great. Like uh, I think if you approach someone and ask him like, hey, can you do something like this? They would be like, no way, no way, I'm not able. And uh, here you are uh, showing like your your first um, hardware device. So how did you go about uh, the manufacturing process? How did you make it uh, work? And how did you make it look so professional as it does? Oh, yeah. Oh, there's so many steps. (laughs) Um, And failures, right? So, you know, we could take a minute and deconstruct that question. 
You know, the first step was we had that breadboard with that one switch to make the note turn on. Um, and so it was just a, a slow evolution in the software, a very slow evolution to get just a little bit more functionality to just one of my huge, you know, okay. So what I'm trying to say is if you don't know how to do this stuff, it's just it, the, <laughs> here's the key point. Watching YouTube videos are great because they can teach you a lot. But the reality is for every one minute that you watch on a YouTube video, it should take you four, three, three or four hours to get through that step in that process. Like if you watch Dave from Notes and Volts mm -hmm. show you how to make this MIDI controller with four knobs, mm -hmm. you watch the video, it's a, I don't know, 15 minutes, maybe, maybe 25 minutes, something, something 15 to 20 minutes, something like that. It, it should take you three or four days to do that project. And, uh, and why I'm saying this is because I think we can fool ourselves. I still do it, right? I've been at this for five <laughs> years. And I still watch videos watching guys coding like uh, simplex noise or Perlin noise. And, and they're just like, so you just take this. And, and they've got it just scripted down like a professor at, at school, right? And like when you prepare for a class, it, it takes you hours and hours to prepare that lecture. And then you give the lecture in 30 minutes and everyone thinks, oh, wow, I could have done that in 30 minutes. But no. <laughs> And so to get from step zero to, to the last step is going to take a long time. And, and uh, don't, be, uh, don't, don't be sad or, uh, or don't, don't think of yourself as like not, not capable of doing this. Uh, it's gonna, it's just, being, just know it's going to take a long time to get there. Man, just, just yesterday I'm farting around with this little project I'm working on where I'm shift registering in some, some, uh, a little keyboard that I'm building. And, um, it took me like three hours just to get the bits, literally the zeros and ones of that shift register in the right order because they were coming in backwards. Mm -hmm. So there's, and there's no function to flip the bits. As it turns out, you would think there's gotta be a function that flips bits. Right. Um, so I spent like three hours just doing this, literally just making sure the bits were right from my, my, shift register um and i like i say i've been do, I, I build shift use shift registers on all my products right so it's like i should know this like mm -hmm. the back of my head so so if you if you're interested in this and you're just starting out it's just going to take a little while but it is really worth it it is really worth it because that sense if if you can do something in five minutes you can forget about it in five minutes <laughs> but if it takes you three days to do it you're going to remember uh, your success for a lot longer and, and feel more proud and accomplished because you actually did something. If you, if it only takes five minutes to do it, you really didn't do anything to be honest. I mean. Yeah. And tell me, uh, I'm curious because uh, each video, each tutorial, let's say it's kind of a dot. It can be a big dot, but it's kind mm -hmm. of a big, it's kind of, it's only a, a dot. And um, I, often discover that when you come to a field from outside like yeah. for example you haven't studied computer science or something uh like people say you can find everything on google right but you need to know what to google first right yeah. so uh, was it also the case for you that like you knew what you wanted to do but you didn't know even the, the terminology to look for absolutely yeah yeah um I remember I, I'll jump to a current project that we're working on and tell you mm -hmm. about my, how, how that's working out for me right now. But I remember the first time I, I really never liked pots. 
potentiometers. Mm-hmm. Um, I still don't. And the reason why I don't in, in the sense that if you get to load a preset, then your potentiometer is always in the wrong place. And so from a user experience, in my, my point of view, is I'm looking at these knobs on my synthesizer, I load a preset, and all the knobs are in the wrong place. They're all lying to me about where mm-hmm. they are mm-hmm. positionally. Yeah. And yeah. to me, that I don't even know how anybody ever got to accept that as being okay. To me, that's <laughs> tragic. So I've always been a big fan of, potential, um, of uh, encoders, rotary encoders, mm-hmm. because then it, when you load the preset, the knob is just where it is there's no mm-hmm. it's because basically all you're doing is incrementing and decrementing the the of uh, the value that's associated with that knob but i can't remember how many and i'm not going to say hours or days but it probably took me a several weeks weeks to figure out how to get a, a, a rotary encoder to work with an arduino um one isn't too bad because you can download some code that lets you use what are called interrupt pins. Mm-hmm. But if you need an interrupt, two interrupt pins, you can use one. But if you needed two interrupt pins for each mm-hmm. for each encoder and you needed eight encoders, now you need a microcontroller with 16 interrupt pins. And, it, and the Arduinos don't have that. So a Teensy has that, right? But But my point is you don't need interrupt pins to do it. And you could figure out I ended up writing my own algorithm to to decode encoder inputs using uh, using basically shift registers. Um, but it wasn't because I was so clever, right? It's it's you know you you learn well what is an encoder, and then you watch some videos and there's some beautiful animated videos of the of the two encoder you know things turning off and on and creating the pulse trains and and if you don't understand it you just got to watch it five times because mm-hmm. that's that's yeah. just how the reality works and, I, and i'm not saying you know i'm just saying stick with it right um i was going to refer to a current project that i'm working on where we're we're gonna we're building a synthesizer conductive labs for a future product and we're deep into it right now and we're using juice as as the um, mm-hmm. as the uh, engine or framework for the uh, synth engine, but we want to make it a hardware synth, and we're going to run it on a Raspberry Pi. Well, a Raspberry Pi is not a microcontroller, which people would call bare metal, right? Which basically is you're programming the chip to do things very specifically. There's no operating system, so when you move to a Raspberry Pi. Now you've got Linux, and there's a zillion flavors of Linux builds and each one of these. And, and so when you say li- Linux build, what does that even mean? Right. You could spend, and we will, and have been spending like a week's weeks trying to fill out, figure out even what a Linux build means. Like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, you got all these stacks of drivers and there's a graphics driver, audio driver, there's all these things. And so, like you said, you know, when you, when you want to do something, it's like you hear about this thing called Raspberry Pi. Oh, I can buy that for 35 bucks and it's so powerful. And then you say, oh, well, how do I run an operating system on it? And and one question just leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And it can absolutely be exhausting. Or you can think about it as like this really great journey to go on, right? It's like, so... And there's so many problems to solve, right? With the synthesizer, right? It's like you got the Linux stuff. You got how do you interface knobs to a to a non real time operating system, right? There's a whole other 
uh, thing like so it yeah yeah so, so it's it, definitely it, uh definitely like a challenge and uh Maybe let's come back to the noodler then. How did you solve all this uh, for the noodler? And mm -hmm. uh, when you had already the, the first prototype, I'm really curious about uh, how did you go about the manufacturing process? Mm, yeah. Well, <clears throat> I'm also a very visual person. So, you know, at the on the one hand, I had this problem statement, which is I want to play in key mm -hmm. chords and I want to play multiple synthesizers. So that was sort of, the, what I wanted to achieve. So I usually sketch the user interface of the device that I want to handle mm -hmm. that stuff. Um, that's how I started with the noodle, right? I remember drawing a circle and putting these these knobs, these buttons mm -hmm. on the circle and writing, you know, one Roman numerals, one, two, three, which are the chords. Um, and then I was thinking, okay, well, I don't want to use pots, so I'm going to use these encoders. So I just drew some encoders down the side. And then I came up with this weird system where if I choose, I'm going to choose which of the four things, which of the four synths that I'm driving. Mm -hmm. And then I decided, well, I'm not going to make it generic. I'm going to make something. So one's like a drone and one's a chord player. And one is like a, and then have two sequencers. In fact, the first mm -hmm. one only had one sequencer. And then I, I realized that two was probably better. So I would draw all this stuff out mm -hmm. and just imagine in my mind using the device as a user. Mm -hmm. And then it's kind of funny when you when you approach it that way, then it, then instead of thinking about it as how do I invent this thing? It's um, how do I um, deconstruct this product that I have in my mm -hmm. imagination into its component mm -hmm, parts? Mm -hmm. So awesome. it's like I have this thing on paper, I can imagine using it in my in my synth room. Now, how does it work? Okay, so I need the screen. And so then I start researching how do you connect a screen to an Arduino? How do you connect how do you connect eight encoders to an Arduino? <clears throat> and those became little problem statements. Awesome. So, so it's as, like working working backwards, right? To yeah. Uh, from, right. from end product back to the um, yeah, it's like reverse engine, right? So I this literally very close. This was in my mind's eye when mm -hmm. I started and drawn on a piece of paper. So it's like Okay, so how do I reverse engineer that guy's product? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Even yeah, though it never yeah. existed, right? It was more mm -hmm. like that was more of the task. Um, in fact, and all the things that I've done is mostly like that. I think about it as the as the user, and then I invent it in my imagination, and mm -hmm. then uh, yeah. So, can you list all the features that the Noodler has? If you were to describe it uh, to someone who is new let's say to the uh, or who let's say enters a, a shop with music hardware and you want to describe to them what is the noodler about well first i'd ask them what their level is so i know where to approach <laughs> right so let's assume they know what a synthesizer is and they know the difference between polyphonic and monophonic if, if that's okay uh, that's not always the case, but let's start because I'm always trying to tell my family. It's like, what does that thing do, Dad? It's like, <laughs> well, <laughs> it makes music. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. So there's there's like I said, there's four tracks inside of the noodler. Um, each track is associated with a different kind of. Uh, um, you can think of the noodler as a compose uh, as like the, the conductor of a band. Mm -hmm. and, and there's four band members, each of them having has a task. 
So one of the tasks is to um, is to be a bass player. So you'd play these basically what we call the the, the drone note. Mm-hmm. So the drone note just follows along with what chord you're on. And um, then there's a pad, which is basically you can think of that as a keyboard player playing the chords, or or maybe a rhythm guitar player playing mm-hmm. the chords as the chords go along with different voicings, chord voicings, and things like that. And then there might be uh, a singer who sings a melody line. And then there might be a guitar player or a keyboard player that plays a melody line on the instrument while the singers. Mm -hmm. So you have two sequences that can be played. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what happens is you can adjust all these settings that um, dictate the way the drone, the, the bass player would play and the chord voicings and what notes are in the in these melodies. And then as you choose the buttons around the circle, they will change the chord for everybody simultaneously. So they, in the key of C, if you push the one button, everybody's gonna be playing the notes out of the C pool. And if you press the two button, everybody will be playing the notes out of the D minor pool. That's one way of thinking about it. Awesome, and then each of the players, let's say, has a controllable pattern of what they play right. is it correct yes yes okay yeah. and uh, from what i what i saw there's also like an an infinite number of other possibilities to control it right uh, yeah. so yeah. it's like it has a so huge number of options yeah so so it's fully uh, the all the knobs have cc's associated with them mm-hmm. um uh also, there's a modulation matrix. So m- most of the time we think about modulating the, s- the uh, different um, parameters of the synthesizer engine, like uh, maybe the, uh, the pulse width of the square mm-hmm. wave or PWM. That's like probably the most common modulation. Or maybe when you get a keynote, a key on event, you, you, you will use an envelope to modulate the filter cutoff mm-hmm or mm-hmm. the amp amplitude, the volume. Um, but I created um, uh, uh, three LFOs and a, moduli- and, a, and a mod matrix, a modulation matrix that you mm-hmm. can map those LFOs to, to knob parameters. So for instance, uh, one parameter is the, I'm looking over this way at the unit. One, one parameter is a, um, the length of the pattern. So, um if you you can put a 16 note pattern in there and then you can modulate the length of that pattern so over time it'll change its length maybe a better example would be position so Mm -hmm. it's like what's the position of a pattern well the pattern are just step patterns um like whole step half step Mm -hmm. two steps three steps right and as you change the pattern it moves it down the keyboard as if you were playing it in a lower register or a higher register Remember, it's also making sure that it's playing the right notes of the chord. So you can think about it as an appreciation of a chord notes and you changing the chord inversions as you go down. Okay. So- that makes sense. And so what's really neat is in practice, I mean, all this is, it's, it's you know, medium weight music theory. It's not really heavy music theory. It's medium. It's not like jazz music theory where they're all over the place. Um, but 
Well, if you modulate it, what, what the effect is, as, as a person who doesn't know about music theory, is you set up this pattern in a place, boop, 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 and it just, then it'll go, boop, 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 and it'll just move up and down automatically for you as if you were changing the position knob. Awesome. Which creates a lot of variety. Exactly. Because the actual steps between the notes will change a little bit because of what chord inversion you're playing. Awesome. And uh, when you get, when you had your uh, first prototype, and I, I think it's also a question uh, concerning your your second product, the, the MIDI Router Control Center. Uh, then, how do you go from from the prototype to actually manufacturing exactly. it to 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 sell it? Then <laughs> I, I don't mean like you know very specific details. I mean in general, yeah. if how to think about this as a maker. Yeah. Well, the first the first noodler was built uh, on a breadboard, a big breadboard with like four four little breadboards ganged up mm -hmm. on this one big thing, um, and we had the screen on there and all the knobs in a row. But I didn't I I had to build that so I could program it and have knobs to turn and test. But I didn't like it because it did not represent the user interface that I imagined at all. Because just because of the physicality of the of the of the way the the breadboards are laid out. So we endeavored in building a prototype on PC on pref board with the holes. Mm -hmm. So we put the knobs in and the buttons as closely as possible to the shape, the final shape. And then I got kind of manic about it. And I, I made a face plate out of plastic because I really wanted to cover everything and, and actually hold one. And then we went to Target and we bought, it's a, a store, a local store. And we bought a little bamboo box that you might put in your um, drawer to hold your spoons and stuff, mm -hmm, your mm -hmm. knives and forks. Yeah, yeah. And and we used that as our box, and we screwed the faceplate down into this thing and squished all the. It was turned into it was two boards about this big of all those wire, and it was just this total rat's nest. And it would work fine. And when you'd squish it down into the box, it would never work. You'd pull it out, it would work again. And it took us like two days to figure out what which connection was loose. And, but what a great, you know, that was a good week. It probably took a week to do that. Um, but wow, it felt so great to feel, <laughs> feel that first mm -hmm. prototype that actually was laid out correctly. Um, you can never have you can never have that with software, right? You cannot hold no. your, your software, but yeah. this kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's really Software tangible. Software is very powerful, but man, holding a physical thing and and then plugging it into a synthesizer and and just doing it, you know, op, operating your box. What what mm -hmm. a great feeling. Uh, so Daryl endeavored. Um, you know, we kind of like we're divvying up tasks, and Daryl wasn't a software developer, and I had some experience doing that, and so I I was started. I was the one that started writing the code, mm -hmm. and uh, Daryl then decided, well. We need to make, if we're going to make a product out of this, we're going to need a PCB. And so he figured out how to make PCBs by watching YouTube. <laughs> and I can't talk a lot to his experience, but it's similar, right? I mean, I think he tried KiCad or KiCad first. Mm -hmm. And this was five years ago before CERN. Apparently, so KiCad, as I understand it, is an open source layout, uh, a layout program. And five years ago, when we started, it was it was that, but it was really, really unusable, very, very unfriendly. <laughs> and I think CERN, the you know the the collider, the super collider, 
mm -hmm. uh, in, is it yeah. in Switzerland um, or yeah, they adopted KiCad as their um, as their layout tool, and then so all the CERN engineers got involved and and they because it was open source they fixed they started fixing everything. Mm -hmm. So as I I think. KiCad's a lot better now than it was five years ago. So mm -hmm. it might actually be a good thing to use. We, uh, we, because we both worked at Intel for a long time, we had a lot of friends in the industry and we ended up getting uh, a, 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 a copy of pads. Um, God, I don't even know the company that makes it, but it's called pads. It's very expensive. And, and we had to pay like, we paid some, you know, someone gave us a, a it was legitimate. But we only had to pay like a student fee of like five hundred dollars or thousand dollars or something like that mm -hmm. for for it, and we that was a huge expense. Um, but we couldn't see any clear path to getting su success. So then Daryl took the schematics, the hand drawn schematics, and just the breadboard and brought it to his desk and traced wires and and made the schematic out of it, and then. And then we made a prototype board. And the first prototype board, we um, we used a Teensy as opposed to an Arduino, mm -hmm. which is a, an Arduino derivative. Mm -hmm. um, and he put a um, headers on the board. So it was, it was basically a shield. They call it a shield. Um, so all the encoders and knobs just fed up into the actual Teensy. Mm -hmm. And the teensy just plugged into it as, as as the brain. We we knew that if we wanted to sell this thing, that we would have to take the chips and put the te all the chips that were on the teensy board down onto our board. But mm -hmm. as a first step, because he never laid out a board before, it was much easier to just wire up the encoders and the buttons to the teensy directly. And uh, and so our first prototype was that board with the and we plug in the teensy. Um, and that's when we did the Kickstarter because mm -hmm. we didn't want to, we didn't want to promise that we could deliver a product until we knew we could make a PCB that worked. Cause we thought that was the biggest, what we would call the long pole in the tent. That's a, a term we use. Um, so that was the longest pole in the tent. We needed to make sure that we could uh, do that task, uh, successfully before we promised that we would ship our product. Mm -hmm. Um, but that was so exciting to get that first board. Um, and I was lucky enough to have a friend that had a, a Glowforge, which is a laser cutter. Mm -hmm. And um, I used uh, Inkscape, which is this free uh, vector-based uh, drawing package. And we very carefully aligned Daryl's PCB with Inkscape and drew holes and labels and things like that. And we brought that to uh, to my friend's house and he cut out a faceplate that had all the graphics on it. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't have I don't have the the noodle here, but I do have this is this is the uh, MRCC mm -hmm. and this is that that plastic. You can see how we do it, right? We we put plastic on the bottom mm -hmm. and then we cut the plastic on the top and uh, yeah, and this is how we make our prototype. Oh, even this one, if you see, can you see in there? There's a teensy here, maybe from the side, right, uh -huh. right here. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. a teensy board plugged in. 
right? So I'm, I'm telling you these for people that might want to endeavor in building stuff, right? Especially if you don't want to make a product like, a th- you know, thousands of product, right? And you just want to make a small run. This is a great way to do it. In fact, I just bought a, a, a kit synthesizer called the Genie from a guy in Germany. And it's a Teensy 4 plugged into a board. And uh, it's great synth. But, you know, he didn't, he didn't take all the effort to put the Teensy parts on his board. You just plug the Teensy right in. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, so you mentioned the Kickstarter campaign. So if, if yeah. someone actually wanted to bring out their hardware idea to the music mm-hmm. market, would you recommend Kickstarter? Yeah, I sure would. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, make sure you have the moral integrity to, to know that you can actually deliver the product mm-hmm. before, pe- before you take people's money. I, I'm sorry. That was terrible of me because that's how <laughs> I think you should do it, right? I mean, some pe- that, that's because I'm not an entrepreneur. <laughs> no, I just insulted all the entrepreneurs, right? No, what I mean is for us, it was really important. As engineers, right, we're always thinking about what's fair. And, and I wouldn't want to give my money to somebody who didn't know they couldn't make a PCB for the product they're promising to sell me, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, there's a couple of reasons why Kickstarter or any of these platforms are really valuable. One is if you fund, you get some money to then get the mm-hmm. PCBs made and manufactured and stuff like that. It's always less than you think you need, by the way. Um, or more than you think you need. Uh, but the other thing is, and, and we kind of figured this out as we were doing it, Daryl and I, we were like, well, we don't know anything about a company. We don't know how many people would ever buy this. And if we were going to make this, and we just did the, literally did the numbers on the back of a napkin, right? Let's say, let's just say it costs $100 to make a noodler and we sell it for $350. Then we make $250 a unit. And it took us two years to make this product at two engineers costs that let's just say, let's just be cheap about it and say $100,000 a year per guy. And that doesn't include insurance. It doesn't include anything, right? That's mm-hmm. just a salary. So if we wanted to recover $200,000, how many of them would we need to sell if we're making $200 profit per unit, let's say, right? That's easy mm-hmm. math to do. So let's just say it's a thousand units. Is that about right? Yeah, two hundred dollars by a thousand. Yeah, so that's two hundred thousand. So you need to sell a thousand units to make this worth your while. Whoa, am I going to sell a thousand noodlers? Um, uh, but you might think to yourself, well, okay, maybe I won't sell a thousand noodlers in thirty days, which is mm-hmm. how long a Kickstarter usually runs for. But if I can sell two hundred of them in thirty days. Or, or 300 of them, some number like that, then you can gauge the interest. Mm-hmm. If nobody wants to buy a thing that you're yeah. selling, if you can't sell 200 of them, and then you, you probably don't have a product. Mm-hmm. Uh, a product, uh, you might have a good idea and you may have an idea that some people want, but, but being a broad appeal, mass appeal product, you might not have that if you can't sell two or 300 of them in, in a month. Um, so that was another thing for us is that we were excited to either succeed or fail so that we would know, is anybody interested in this thing? Mm -hmm. So it was more market research than, than for the money. In fact, at the end of the day. 
Great. I love it. I like uh, first thing that market validation is, uh, that, I believe it's, yeah. it's incredibly important thing. And it's awesome that you weren't, like you said that you, you did it because you like to do it, but it's, it's not entirely true, right? You also were, okay, if, if I were, if I were to do it seriously, I'm first yeah. going to check if someone actually is going to benefit from, from this product. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, really really great and at the same time uh, another important thing that you mentioned i also read that it's so easy to over over promise on kickstarter it's so easy to over promise and to uh, like make up i don't know uh, you know t-shirts or hats with your logo for the top tiers yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and and then like you cannot you cannot deliver right so yeah it's also it's also awesome that you uh the way that you went about it and so i imagine like uh for the for the your second product did you also do a kickstarter campaign or okay yeah so yeah yeah we did again for the by that time we had so we had our first batch of noodlers, we had made 600 units. And that's a whole other story. I'll, I'll try to tell it really quick. Mm-hmm. So we had the PCBs made in China and, and stuffed, meaning all the components were soldered to it. Mm-hmm. And we had the enclosure, which is this metal, aluminum metal box made locally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same guy that had the laser cutter made the little screen covers and the so there's not too many pieces to a noodle or it's, it's this box, a metal box. It's got two pieces, just a top and a bottom. Um, there's a little screen cover right here that covers the LCD screen. Uh, and there's basically the knobs and button covers. Um, and that's it. Uh, this one we made some little wooden cheeks for, for fun, but um, uh. that's not, that's not normal. Um, and so the box came from local supplier. The screen came from my friend that, and uh, the PCB came from the uh, PCB way, I think is a mm-hmm. company we used. And then we ordered the knobs off of Alibaba um, and the button covers. Um, and all that made us crazy, by the way, because, you know, you don't know if they're really going to fit. <laughs> so you, oh. you order a sample pack and they do fit and you're like, okay, great. And then you make the holes the right size for those buttons. And then you order, what is it? A, eight or eight buttons times 600. So whatever that math is, <laughs> thousands of, you know, bags of buttons show up, button caps, right? Yeah. So anyway, all this stuff shows up. Um, and uh, there were some problems. There was, oh, by the way, so you'll have problems with everything. <laughs> all the PCBs showed up and the, the screens were hanging off the PCBs and they weren't affixed. And they were all broken. And the screen was the most expensive part of the of the board. The, they were held, they were they're soldered on by a flexible cable. And the flex cable was just, you know, doing a doing a doing, bouncing and through shipping. And they all yeah. tore off the boards. I, I would say maybe 10% of them worked. Okay. So we had to hire um hire a, a person who soldered. Mm-hmm. by the hour and in in America that was very expensive um and uh the display company sold us the displays at a pretty reasonable price we told them what happened and they gave us a little discount um mm-hmm. so we had to buy the displays over again which i don't know was like 2 or 3 dollars per unit so mm-hmm. um and then uh the the manufacturer of the box the actual aluminum case couldn't figure out how to make 
a square box. I, I mean, it was ridiculous, right? You're like, this is a giant facility. They actually make landing gear for Boeing, pieces of the landing gear, right? And it's like, you can't make a box, right? You know, um, but I won't get into all those details. But um, so the next thing is, so now we're downstairs in the basement working at Daryl's house, which is where Conductive Labs is and is still. And we've got these piles of boxes and piles of PCBs and and we're putting them together and we're like so happy. Our products coming to, you know, becoming real. And we're wrapping them in bubble wrap and putting them in these boxes that we bought from a box company and putting a sticker on the box and stacking them up. But like at the end of like day two or three, there's only like 40 or 50 units made <laughs> and we have to make 600 of them. And we're sitting across the table from each other. And it's like, this isn't fun anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention, I think I can train pretty much anybody to do what I'm doing. And I can't train anybody to start writing the, continue writing the code for the MRCC or fixing yeah. bugs on the noodler. And yeah. we quickly realized that we were wasting our time doing a task that could be we could pay somebody to mm -hmm. do without the expertise that we had for to work. And, and it wasn't even that it wasn't even like I'm, I'm more important than this. It wasn't that at all. It course, was a yeah. simple, a simple matter of if I'm not writing code, then the next product isn't being made and we're not getting any closer to another product. Right. I'm wait, kind of wasting my time doing this mm -hmm. when I should yeah. be doing that, especially when I could pay somebody uh, a reasonable wage, but a low wage. To... So we hired a, a young man to come in who was, you know, really excited and enthusiastic about making stuff. And mm -hmm. he, you know, and we paid him per unit. We paid him some, you know, I don't know, a few bucks to make a box. Take, takes about 15 minutes to make a noodler. And, uh, and, and he could, you know, work at his own pace because we were paying him per unit, not per hour. Um, and slowly over a few months, you know, they stacked up and, and we delivered them as we, uh, like every every day we'd get 20 or 30 we would go to the mailbox and and ship off the next batch to the kickstarter people and then we realized okay this isn't working at all we can't this guy you know we want we sold out immediately um and we needed a thousand more units and and Really, that's a, that's a great problem to have. That's a great problem to yeah. have. <laughs> it was a great problem to have. It was really a great problem to have. But we would, and I talked to, I, I try to reach out to other people in my same position. Like I see some great Kickstarter products. Like there's some guys up in Denmark who I haven't talked to who came out with a, a MIDI sequencer controller recently. It's really cool. And then there's another guy um, in Spain. Um, who has one called the OXI, Oxy, I think you pronounce it. And he and I have actually had some Zoom meetings just to sort of get to know each other. And I, I love that. Even though we're competing in the same market, it's like there aren't enough people in the world that are like me that I get to talk to. And even though we're sort of competing, I, I, we have a, we immediately sort of had a rapport with each other because mm -hmm. I know what he's going through right now. It's his first <laughs> show and he's, he's sitting in his basement putting together the OXIs and I know exactly. And it's great for him to hear the encouragement and, and just to share. And, um, and it's not that I'm better or anything than him. It's, you know, it's just a, a timeline, right? We're just mm -hmm. a little, just exactly. literally a baby step ahead of him. 
And, you know, one day we, who knows, we may end up working together, right? That's kind of how this industry works. It's such a small industry that being friendly with each other is much better than being adversarial, I yeah, think. Of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we, so we, so the next step is th- through our network, we got in touch with a, a manufacturer, a young man, who, a young American who moved to China, speaks Chinese, and he builds stuff for people. And it's like, how lucky could that be? <laughs> um, so I flew over to China with a noodler and parts. And I showed him how the whole thing works. We did some Zoom meetings first. And then once we agreed on some on process and product and, and that we'd work together, I flew over there and I spent a week over there. And um, and uh, they they manufacture all our stuff now. In fact, um, the MRCC was quite a bit different in its stepping. You know, we built, uh, I built a weird rat's nest of stuff to program against. Mm-hmm. And then Daryl went right to work and made a, 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 this board that you saw in this enclosure. Um, and then we made this enclosure and that was step two, as opposed to trying to make one by hand mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to fit this format. Um, and our manufacturer made this for us, right? So what was nice about that is they took, they were taking the steps with us, the prototype samples, and then the actual product. So they, they were growing with us, like knowing how to put it together. If there was any, you know, um, wh- one of the things is uh, designing for manufacturability. Mm-hmm. So if your design is really hard to manufacture because it takes too many steps, you know, that could be very costly. Mm-hmm. So one of what's nice about going through the sample procedure with your manufacturer is they'll tell you, hey, this is a problem. Can we, is there a faster way of doing this? Can we rethink how to do this? Yeah. Yeah, of course, because you are not uh, familiar with the manufacturing process on a large yeah. scale, right? So right, right? You cannot tell in advance what will work and what not. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, so now that you had like an established pipeline for yeah. uh, for your products, uh, okay. So I have a question, but maybe could you just uh, briefly say what the MRCC is about? Yeah, it's um. Let me. So, ah, there's a real one right here. <laughs> so this this is a, a MIDI router. Mm-hmm. Uh, what the problem statement for this was. I've got a bunch of controllers sitting on my desk and I've got a bunch of synths that I want to control mm-hmm. and all the, um, all the MIDI routers that we saw on the market were rack mount MIDI routers mm-hmm. that you had to go to your computer to change the routings. Oh, okay. Like you had to open mm-hmm. up this spreadsheet kind of thing and type in stuff. And we wanted something to be really simple. Mm-hmm. There was, um, there was this old aluminum box that had two inputs and a toggle switch for each output. And that toggle switch would choose which input would go to that output. Um, it was from the early eighties. Can't remember the name. And we bought them off of Craigslist for 20 or 50 bucks, whatever. Some of, but it was really cool. Cause I, I would have two controllers and I could just choose which one. And, and it was like, that's what I need, but I need it for like everything. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the, the idea is that you press a button here, which chooses your input. So let's say you've got a, a keyboard uh, key step plugged into here. Mm-hmm. You choose that. And then over here are all your outputs. 
and you just choose which output you want it to go to, and it can go to more than one. And then the uh, the um, MIDI host ports, you know, one of the things was like this key, like, like we wanted, how do you make this be a key step? Mm -hmm. Right? So this doesn't have MIDI ports. It only has the USB that plugs in your computer. It's mm -hmm. meant for use with the DAW. Mm -hmm. But if you just take this cable and, and plug it into the MRCC right here, wink, now you can route that to any keyboard and you can use it for dollars. Awesome. Jamming. Yeah. So that was kind of one of the promises of this device was you can use any of the low cost controllers that are typically targeted at DAW control and use them to control your, your synthesizer directly. Yeah. So it, yeah, that's the, that's the short story. And then there's a screen over here with a bunch of, and a knob and a little menuing system so that you can control all these routings um, use doing filtering, all kinds of filtering for clock and uh, real-time MIDI messages and all this stuff. Um, there's also uh, a four track appagiator built into this. So that key step nano can act like a key step because you can use the appagiator built into the, in this unit. Um, and there's a just, you know, the ideas kept coming and kind of feature creep, but, uh, but yeah, that's, and you can actually, oh, it's also cool is because these are just host ports. You can also plug a regular QWERTY keyboard, you know, like a, a typing keyboard mm -hmm. into this. And so if you want to label your inputs and outputs, you can just type all your inputs and outputs in and then assign them on the screen. So when you, when you switch a button, it'll tell you what device it is. Um, and then we also made it uh, to U, and we have rack ears. So this can be mounted in your rack mm -hmm. as well. It's, uh, it's, it's just a little short of 19 inches. So we've got a little hole on the side in the rack here so you can get to these, these parts. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, so you can, and then this is a port over here. Uh, ooh, it's vanishing. Uh, this port right here, you can uh, connect two of these together. So you can put one, leave one on your desk and put one in your rack and they, they cross. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. So if I've got like a bunch of rack synths and then I've got some tabletop synths and tabletop controllers, I can route them all over the place. Yeah. yeah that's, that's incredible. Yeah. Thanks. And uh, so I'm really excited to ask then what are you working on right now with all, all your experience already? You can finally now sit down and say, okay, I can do whatever I want. What do yeah. I do? Boy, that's, that's uh, dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we created this little guy, which is a, uh, remember I showed you that little port on the side of the MRCC? You can also plug this little guy into that port and it's an expander. So it gives you more ports. So instead of buying a second MRCC for 400 and something dollars, you buy this for, I don't know what we're, it's, it's under a hundred dollars, 50 or $60. And this, you could put uh, uh, an ethernet cable. It just uses an ethernet cable. It's not speaking ethernet protocol, mm -hmm. but you can put this up to like, uh, like geez, now the numbers escape me, but like 50 feet. Mm -hmm. uh, 15 meters or something like that. So mm -hmm. you can put this on the other side of your, of your uh, studio and, and control stuff through here as an extender. Uh, this one's called the remote, the MRCC remote. 
and another thing about going to China is that you can make all these really cool boxes. So this is nice. this is what our there's a giant version of this for the MRCC, but this is a little remote box. But it's really fun to get the box too, and it's all printed. Um, little show and tell. <laughs> and then this is uh, this is our latest pro product, which is uh, another product that's connected to the MRCC. Again, it fits in the same form factor. So does this. They don't they don't come in plastic. Um, this one's called the extender, and this is um, basically it's a four port uh, to USB interface. You could plug it into your computer and use it as a one out a four in and one out uh, five pin din but it's mostly targeted at, you can also plug this into the host port of your MRCC. And for one host port, you get four more five pin inputs. Okay. Over USB, you can have what are called virtual cables. So this is virtual cable one, virtual cable two, three, and four coming in. <clears throat> and some, some software products, like if you're running a standalone synth, like not inside of a DAW, Mm -hmm. uh, each synth, like the Aturia synths, require that they have their own uh, virtual cable. As opposed, mm -hmm. you can't share one cable and just change the channels. Um, you actually need a different virtual port. So this is cool for that too. Mm -hmm. um, and then we're working on another MRCC, like a, a smaller version. But I don't want to say too much about that because it's still in development phase. But a, a much lower cost, much a greatly reduced mm -hmm. version, but a version that you can select inputs and outputs as just as easy with the, and, um, yeah. And then I alluded to earlier, mm -hmm. we're, we're working on a synthesizer project, which I'm super excited about, but I, I, I don't want to talk about too much. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's like, geez, do we need another synthesizer project <laughs> out there? Um, I, I uh, I'll, I'll tell you this. I, I thought I invented a new a new way of doing synthesis because I was thinking about wavetable synthesis, and uh, and my brain just went crazy, and um, I I came up with this really cool. And then I did a bunch of research and realized that it was invented on paper in this in the seventies. I think uh, they didn't have computers powerful enough to do this kind of digital stuff in the seventies. And there's been some stuff I won't say anymore because I'm starting to get close to giving things. I, I, I really, really, really want to tell everybody what I'm doing. I'm so excited. I'm like jumping out of my skin. And um, we're using Juice um, and we're building it on a PC, but it will be a hardware synthesizer. Mm -hmm. It runs on a Raspberry Pi. Um, and uh, and it's it's working phenomenally right now. I would say we're probably... Uh, Maybe 50% would be a little bit too strong, but we're in that ballpark, 40% to 50% done. Um, so I can hear it and play it with controllers as a stand, as like a, a VST, standalone mm -hmm. VST. And uh, it's really super cool. <laughs> but there's so much work. that When I say 50% done, I mean just with the software. Mm -hmm. We've got a bunch of hardware stuff to do. Um, and and like I mentioned earlier, we're still trying to figure out the whole the whole Raspberry Pi thing. And there's companies like uh, like uh, Elk, which you know we're trying to even figure out what Elk does. I mean, it's 
some of these companies are weird. It's like, okay, yeah, so you have a real-time operating system, but what, I don't know. So anyway, we're trying to reach out to these guys and other guys and try to get, you know, get some, we don't mind getting help where we need help. Uh, at this point, you know, in the very beginning, we we started the company, uh, I, yeah, that Daryl and I both decided, once we decided to start the company, we would both pitch in $1,000 and we opened up a bank account and we put the thousand, the two thousand dollars in there, and uh, and that's how we started the company with two thousand dollars. Yeah, um, we've never taken any more money out of our personal money. Oh, and we're not paying ourselves a hundred thousand a year. Like I, I was mm-hmm. using that as a measurement, not. What mm-hmm. we, yeah, we we. Yeah, we we didn't pay ourselves anything for the first two and a half years. Literally nothing. Mm-hmm. And then we started taking a thousand dollars a month each, which is two hundred and fifty dollars a week. That's just about nothing, um, but it made us feel like we were doing something. And and then now we're up to a, a, I, I don't know minimum, basically minimum wage is what we're paying ourselves now, um, because we've got the product selling and we have an income. So you don't expect to make any money for a long time if you're going to try to start a company. Uh, that's just kind of how it works. But what I'll just talk about this other thing, and I'm not sure we're going to productize it. Uh, we might, but I'm so excited about it, and I'm going to just talk about something. But this is um, – so I build hardware all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm tired of soldering stuff. So – we decided to build some modules like this is a, a nano mm-hmm. and we built this module here. That's got these headers and these are two shift register headers. And this is a MUX header and this is a MIDI header. Mm-hmm. And so then we built a MIDI module. Actually, maybe this is the MIDI header. And so this is basically just routes the serial ports over to here. And then this, this shift shift register header goes to these modules. And this is, these are two different modules and you can see they've got a keyboard layout. Mm -hmm. And so these represent, you know, a keyboard, but they just shift in the data, right? So what happens is you write the code on here to shift in the register from this pin. And this board has two shift registers on it. So it can shift in 16 bits. And this board has two shift registers. So it, a total of shifting in 32 bits. Mm-hmm. And so then I can know which button is being held held down. Also, you notice there's these are 10 pin headers. So in addition to the shift register, um, I also have a, a NeoPixel bus. So there's LEDs on the bottom of these boards, and I can drive all the NeoPixels on the bottom of these boards over the same header. Mm-hmm. So it really is so basically. If I were to build a module with with knobs, I could have an LED on top of the knob and a knob. And, and when I rotate the knob, I can change the color of the LED to indicate some amount mm-hmm. or sliders or whatever. So this is just a really fast way. So I've got some libraries written that I run on the Nano that just do shift register stuff. And I've got and that does MIDI stuff. And I, I basically made a keyboard controller out of these four modules. Um, and we're making a bunch more modules um, with knobs and sliders and mm-hmm. 
and a, a screen, a module with a screen. There's also a, a, a protocol called Quixi, I think. It's Q, Q-I-C-C or K-I-C-C. It's um, Adafruit and SparkFun do this. Mm-hmm. And so we have, um, we don't have the connector on there right there, but we have a header for it. So it's basically um, I squared C bus, which mm-hmm. is a protocol. And so you can hang I squared C device off of here. And uh, there's lots of cool things. Like there's these, all these pin headers. It's like, what's that? Well, there's only 12 buttons on this module, but a shift register comes in eight bits at a time. So I've got 16 bits on this module. So there's four extra headers here that are exposed directly to the shift register on the bottom of the board. And so I can just solder a button to that. If I want like an, one extra lone button over here, I could just solder it to these two pins mm-hmm. and it'll come in on that shift register as data. So it's in, in addition to these modules being flexible, they also can be flexible and that you can create your own little module on a little PCB and then just solder those a, a pin header to that pin and, and read that encoder or that button also. And then if you notice what I think is kind of novel here is that we put holes in the corner of these boards that accept Lego Lego bricks mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they're spaced out so that they match the Lego base plate. Mm-hmm. So it stays pretty good, right? I mean, this I don't these boards aren't, you know, jumping all over my table. And if you take a little bit of glue, you can just glue these things down and and now you've got basically your your controller sort of with a little Lego mm-hmm. base plate and you know, you could cut the base plate and make it smaller or whatever. So we may end up selling these as prototype modules to makers. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome. So it's kind of not really the business that we're in, but we like supporting makers so much that it's like I got to a point now where I I know I know what I need as a as a designer to quickly prototype things, and why not share that experience by making these modules and teach and giving people the library that they can download? They have to write all their own code to do the MIDI stuff and all that, but. If I could order these when I did that notes and volts video, then this is this is what this is exactly what Dave in the notes and volts did on a breadboard. And now I've got a physical instantiation of that with no soldering at all. Yeah. Yeah. So, so exactly. Yeah. So you you went through that pain yourself and now you yeah. can you know exactly what's missing. So you can design the products as if you were designing for your past self. Yes. and make people use it so that more people can do what you did at, uh, let's say, uh, easier way. Easier, yeah, lower barrier to entry. Exactly, yeah. exactly. You're lowering the barrier. Yeah. And in fact, it's not my past self. It's my current self. <laughs> um, so we did these three modules because I'm going to build our synth this way. Mm-hmm. So we're going to build, these modules are so inexpensive to get made at, what do we get done, a PCB way, I think? Or, no, JLC PCB is where we had them made. And so I'm going to make the modules that I need for my synth layout. It won't be exact, but it'll be pretty close. Mm-hmm. And I'll be able to use a couple of these boards side by side and, and build my whole synth on it. Um, and just use it basically as a MIDI controller to talk to the Raspberry Pi at that point. And and uh, and have a really good 
probably get 70%, 80% of the way to uh, software um, and even the hardware design. Because if you think about it, this is how most things are built, is that you've got all these buttons and LEDs connected to um, shift registers and, and NeoPixel bus. So, yeah, that's, that's what we're up to. Awesome. And yeah. uh, about uh, your products, I also, uh, I think many people are interested in a, like, what's this market like in the sense, I think what's more, most uh, mm, imaginative, let's say, is the actual numbers. So is it possible for you Uh, to say uh, how many units uh, of, of your products you were able to sell and uh, what are the possible margins that people can expect. I know you shared a little bit about your salary and I think it would be, would be pretty cool uh, if you could uh, show how this looks from, from your side. Yeah, sure. But so I didn't talk to Daryl about this part and I don't, So I'm not going to tell you exactly the numbers. I want to, but you know, I, I I'm being I'm scared because I'm not an entrepreneur and I don't and I you know <laughs> a real businessman I don't think would ever tell you their numbers, right? But I can tell you magnitudes. So mm -hmm. if that if that'll work for you, yeah. uh, as I said earlier, our first batch of noodles were 600, and then we made another. The second batch we made was a thousand units, and we've made several batches. Mm -hmm. So that gives you the magnitude, right? Awesome. Um, MRCC is the same kind of magnitude. So um, depending on where you get these things made, if you get them made in China, which, by the way, if you get the right manufacturer and you spend time, well, I'm sorry, I don't want to make light of this. It's really hard working with a manufacturer even a good one, because they've got their own business model. They're trying to squeeze out every penny they can. And you're trying to keep the quality up. Um, I don't think, uh, I, I don't think getting things made in China is necessarily bad. But if you were making things locally, you'd probably have to spend the same amount of time in, in contact with your local manufacturer to get the quality that you want. It's just, if they're down the street, it doesn't seem as bad. And it might seem like it's easier when they, they live down the street, as mm -hmm. opposed to living, you know, whatever it is, 8,000 miles away. And in a time zone that makes it hard, right? All our meetings are, are like after 5 PM on the yep. Pacific, Pacific time is their morning. So we're, we have meetings with them in the evenings, right? So that choose, if you, if you want work-life balance, and want your evenings free or whatever, uh, you know, and for you guys, what is it early morning for China uh, from Europe? Is that how it works? Uh, so for me, it's actually 6 p.m. 6 p.m. 20. So I, I mean, uh, what you're asking about your evenings. If you were to talk to China, you have to do that super early in your morning, right? Uh, it's their, their evening is your morning, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, I think Europe, the U.S. and China are, e are like... Mm -hmm equal thirds around the globe. So yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. hard to, it's hard to communicate. Um, 
Yeah, it's like anyway, right now, right? Like it's it's uh, six six p.m., six twenty p.m. for me, and for you, it's what like nine nine, a, nine twenty a.m. Yeah, nine a.m. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so it, so it's hard to do that, and um, but here here you know it's like another thing is like why did you choose China? Well, there's all the obvious reasons, right? But what's not so obvious, and it's not like we're Americans and we're going to make it in America. Fuck yeah. You know, it wasn't that, right? But we figured, yeah, it'd be a lot easier if we made everything in Portland, right? So we could just drive down to the PCB manufacturer and make sure things are going well. And and we made the, originally we made the box in Portland. Mm -hmm. Um, We went to some PCB manufacturers in Portland. Um, and even in the Pacific Northwest, we went for a bigger, you know, which is a four, three or four state wide. The the cost that they wanted to charge us for manufacturing a PCB was literally more than the price we wanted to pay. We wanted to charge for the product. Mm-hmm. So where in China you can get a PCB made, like you know, all these ads you see on YouTube now about use JLC PCB and PCB way, and there's a several manufacturers that are really uh, pushing uh, for uh, uh, some uh, market share and on YouTube via the US. Maybe it's that way in Europe too. I don't know. Um, th- the board prices are ridiculously cheap. Um, two orders of magnitude less. Than doing mm-hmm. two orders of magnitude. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, like these little boards here. If I, I don't, I, I, I can't, you know, we made a run of like 20 of each of these boards, um, and all the surface mount stuff was attached. And I don't, I don't think it was more than $200 or maybe, le- maybe it was, it was, n- it wasn't a lot of money to get a lot of these. Mm-hmm. We so well. The bottom line is we could never afford to sell a product that anybody would pay for mm-hmm. if we would build it in the United States. Yeah. So we were essentially forced to mm-hmm. go to China to do that. And then when we got the enclosures made, we paid a lot of money for these enclosures for the first six hundred of them, and they were crap. Um, mm. you know, I, I uh, you know, one story is. They called us up and they said, hey, we got the uh, anodizing samples, little square, one square inch or whatever, three three centimeter square uh, samples of anodizing for the aluminum. So why don't you guys come on in and we can show you the samples. Then while you're here, you could see because we, we're running your, your, we're cutting your stuff out with the, we look at the samples, we choose the color that we want. And then we go down onto the factory floor and there's all this aluminum that's been cut, stacked up for the bending phase. Mm-hmm. And uh, I pick one up and it feels like I was going to slice my hand. I mean, it was like razor sharp, right? And I said to the guy, wow, these are really sharp. He's like, they are? And I'm like, yeah, check it out. And he rubbed his finger against it and he felt the abrasion, right? And I said, so you guys are going to be finishing all the edges before you bend them, right? And he's like, that's not on the work order. And, you know, it was like, and by the way, we went back and we checked with our, uh, we, we, we know a guy that's a mechanical engineer and he used um, uh, 
three a 3D a 3D uh, package that mechanical engineers use. No, mm-hmm. a really famous one. Can't remember the name of it. Like the um, AutoCAD or something. Like this? It wasn't AutoCAD. It's their competitor, I think. But oh, okay. it's very very common. Anyway, he he helped us by, you know, and um, and right on the instructions it says break and whatever the right terms. There's some funky terms for making uh, sheet metal boxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it basically said, you know, smooth the edges in, mm-hmm. in, in regular terms. And they didn't do it. And it's like, if they had bent everything, they would have had to, we couldn't accept it. You would have, mm-hmm. you, it would have been, you know, it's a product. And I said, I literally turned to the guy and I said, look, if, if you're not willing to slide that across your kid's face, like, then, then, I, then you're not, then I'm not willing to accept it. That's, that's your test. And I was surprised, really surprised that that I had to tell this guy mm-hmm. that you can't deliver a product like that. It's like, and they 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 probably threw away more enclosures than they delivered. And it wasn't because we were being picky. I mean, they were just just crap, just not acceptable as a product enclosure for various reasons. Um, and I'm saying all this, not to be a complainer, I'm saying this because if somebody is watching this and, and, and thinking about getting into manufacturing, you will get PCBs where the screens are dangling and fail. You will get enclosures where the edges are so sharp, you cut your hands. You will get knobs that don't fit on the actual encoder shaft. Um, anything that can happen will happen. And Hopefully, it's not so catastrophic that it ruins your business. Don't be so scared that you don't try this because we did. We had these failures and we got over them and and were relatively successful. So it's you can do it, but just be prepared that you will you will have to conquer so many problems um, on your path through through this journey. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of this path. Uh, you described a great deal of, of challenges and I think it's it's very honest so that people see how it actually looks. It's not just a shining success yeah. story, but it's, there's a lot of dirt there. There's a lot. Uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, if someone came to you and said, yeah. hey, I want to build my own music hardware, then where would you suggest they started? Well, the first thing is you have to build a prototype on a on a on a on a uh, on a, a breadboard. Mm-hmm. That's the first step. Um, <clears throat> then the next step would be to well, you don't know your hardware works until you write some firmware for it. I mean, it could be a, a if it's a strict analog circuit where there is no software, then you then you have to build it on that prototype board and you have to hear it. It's got to either sound good or not sound good. Um, and I, I, I'm not too familiar with building analog circuitry. I have a degree in electrical engineering. That, that's what I got it in, but that was 30 <laughs> years ago. Um, but I, I understand from people from watching videos that uh, what you build on a breadboard isn't often what you get when you put it on a PCB. So you have to be very careful of translating an analog design from a breadboard to a PCB. So there's, so that step and then the next step is make a PCB 
and and plug your components in. If it's analog, there might be a, a you know iteration mm -hmm. there. Um, it's I, I think plugging in the the brain into a socket is a great first step, as opposed to trying to solder your your uh, your microcontroller mm -hmm. and the crystals and all that stuff down. Uh, I think that's a, a great a, and it might even be your finishing point if you're doing low runs. It might even be the right way to do it is to plug that brain in that way. Maybe put a zip tie around it to secure it or something if you're going to ship it that way or screw it down. Some, figure something out. But uh, but yeah, that's a viable thing. Um, and just just keep at it. It's doable. You can do it. And I know that's sort of the American Nike just do it thing, <laughs> right? But uh, it takes a lot of hard work. You'll beat your head against the desk and 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 not want to do it and question your own abilities to even be successful. Um, hell, I, I I sit here sometimes. I'm you know we're I don't know how many tens of thousands of lines of code we're into the synthesizer and it's like this is never going to work, even though it's working, right? <laughs> it's like, who am I fooling? I'll never be able to sell this. You know, nobody will ever want to listen to this or, you know, you all these fears. I watched this really cool video just two days ago about some young man. I really apologize that I don't remember his name. He may have been um, Italian, a lot like your videos, a lot, a lot like your <laughs> videos. And, I'm, and, he, and, he, and his example was, uh, this is what a DSP engineer does. Let's look at a volume knob, right? The, like the simplest thing in the world you would think. Mm -hmm. And he deconstructs the DSP work of writing a volume knob. First, you know, just the linear transformation. Just, And then it's like, but we don't hear linearly. We hear logarithmically. So you have to solve this mm -hmm. problem. And well, when you turn that knob, you're going to sample that knob at some low frequency because you've got to sample the knob to know where it is. But your volume is going really fast in terms of your audio stream. So you got to be careful not to get these step stepping through the, the, the volume levels over time. So then you want to put a low pass filter on your volume knob, which is a smoothing function. Mm -hmm. And, and he's so, you know, like you're three levels down now in on something as simple as a volume knob, which was the point of his whole video, right? Not not to scare people, but just to say, hey, there's a lot to consider when you're doing this. And I'm watching this video going, oh my God, my synth is never going to work. Because <laughs> I'm thinking, what do I, the big thing was, and I said this to Daryl yesterday, it's like, I don't know what I don't know. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, I, I, I stay up late at night, in the middle of the night, you know, waking up, worrying about the things I do know, how to how to make the things I do know work right. And now I'm worried about all the things I don't know that I don't know how to make work right. I don't even know that I don't know, right? It's, but all of that stuff is what humans, maybe maybe some humans don't, but this human does. This is what I, I, I worry about. And I think a lot of people suffer from the same things. And, and just put that button in that breadboard and connect it to that MIDI that that MIDI uh, jack and with that 220 ohm resistor and and just make that button turn a note on and off. If that's all you do, that's fantastic because you did something right. You made something happen, and I I can't tell you what what that does to the soul in terms of feeding, especially if you're a creative type and you want to and you're like you you feel like you're born to make things. 
just do that. Just make that one button, make that note turn on and off. And then maybe the next day you'll put two buttons or you'll put a knob that changes the note. And then the next day you'll do something else. And, um, and it's just one day after another. Um, when you watch these YouTube videos of guys, like, let's make a video controller today. And they make the whole thing and it works within 15 minutes. Again, like I said earlier, um, it's a great video to watch. It'll help you take those steps. As you mentioned, it'll help you know what you don't know and where to start Googling and what to look for when they start, you know, here's an encoder. It's like, what's an encoder? Type it in and you get all these videos. But but just put that switch in that in that thing and make it turn a note on and off. I swear it's the best first step. Awesome. It's like crack. It's like the guy at the <laughs> <laughs> in the playground. Here, just take a hit off this pipe. You'll really like it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really that's really awesome and uh, with it i would like to uh, ask you the final question if sure. someone wanted to contact you uh mm -hmm. personally where, where do you recommend they go i gotta go <laughs> <laughs> um well my email is steve at conductivelabs.com And I'm I'm an old school guy, so I don't I don't do the Twitter. I, I don't even know how that stuff works, to be honest. It's it baffles my mind, but because you just keep scrolling, right? So how do you but an email? Yeah, so send me an email at Steve at Steve at conductivelabs.com. And I'll try to I'll try to answer. I, I don't get that much email. I, it's not like I got it's not like I got fans or anything, right? So um I'm I'm certainly busy at work, but if 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 I can uh If I can, I will absolutely reply to anybody who sends me an email. Yeah. Awesome. And I, I believe you definitely will get excited that there are more people who are doing stuff with music yeah. hardware. Yeah. So I, I link to that email and to uh, the web page of Conductive Labs and okay, all the all the products that we've mentioned in the show notes to this podcast episode. Okay, But nice, with yeah. this, uh, I would like to wish you all the best with all your upcoming products. And I hope we'll get a chance to talk again someday in the future. Oh, well, that sounds great. I'd love to show you the synth when it's done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank Thanks you. so much. All right, everyone. That was Steven Barile of Conductive Labs. And I hope I got the name right this time. And you can contact him via email at steve at conductivelabs.com. I am super excited about their upcoming synthesizer and I encourage you to follow their developments closely. Once again, if you're uh, interested in learning more about people, places and things mentioned in this podcast, you can check out the show notes at dwolfsound.com slash talk 005. As you finished listening to this podcast episode, I gather that you're interested in audio programming, maybe making your own synthesizer, be it software synthesizer or hardware synthesizers, and you definitely would like to hear about the underlying principles of digital audio. If so, I encourage you to subscribe to my email newsletter at dwolfsound.com slash newsletter. In this way, you won't skip any content that is published by Wolfsound. Thanks for listening to this episode and I'll see you in the next one. Take care.